With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is David Gellis, author of the new book, The Man Who Broke Capitalism, all about Jack Welch and how he ruined the economy and more. So, David, good to have you on the podcast. Why'd you decide to write the book? I've been a business reporter for more than 10 years now, and I'm always looking for those big stories that can sort of help explain and synthesize how we got here and the world we live in. And I'll tell you the details of how I arrived on Jack as a subject. But when I arrived there, when I really realized, when it sort of clicked for me about two years ago, that this was an individual, this was a story that was one of those meta-narratives that crystallized some of these big transformative forces at work in the economy. It was sort of a layup for me to go after it as a real target for the book. Okay. Uh, How come the rest of the business press missed this for decades? Oh, man, that's uh, one of the big questions. And I try to address some of that in the book. I think it's important to remember that at first they they didn't necessarily miss it. In those first couple of years after Welch took over, in the early 1980s, we're now talking about, he was dubbed Neutron Jack. People saw the mass layoffs. People saw the factory closures. And they realized that this was a man who was unleashing a destabilizing force on the American economy. And they called him out for it, rightly. And he got very unflattering press on 60 Minutes. Newsweek dubbed him Neutron Jack. And it it was a pretty rough news cycle for him, if you will. But then here's what happened. And we got to acknowledge this because it's part of the complex and difficult conversation. All of the stuff he did started to work. And it all worked in delivering GE record short-term profits record 
uh, short, relatively short term, and we, we should have a discussion about how we measure time horizons here. But for most of his 20 years as CEO of GE, the stock kept going up. And as long as the stock kept going up, sort of irregardless of the human cost on the ground, people were cheering along because that was the world that we all had decided more or less we wanted to live in. One in which we were going to measure success and the health of the American economy by the market capitalization of America's biggest companies. And what he did was find a formula toward keep GE's stock moving up sort of inexorably for 20 years. And so during that time, it became very hard for the business press to sort of see through and look past all that and really evaluate the consequences of what was going on. I don't want to say that I'm brilliant, but certainly by by time we hit the end of the 90s, it was clear to me that he was cooking the books. I mean, cooking the books would uh, say there's illegality. I want to go that far, that he was manipulating the books. Mm -hmm. But that was not in the business press. There was very little of it. And I'm reminded here of the financial crisis in 2008, when everyone said like, wait, are these subprime mortgages were a bad thing after all? Like, where was the scrutiny, right? That, that like hyper uh, financialization and like collateralized debt obligations might be a problem. <laughs> uh, th- there was very little recognition of, uh, uh, of, of some of those issues by the business press in the immediate uh, months preceding the absolute implosion. And similarly, that you're absolutely right to say that there was inadequate scrutiny of GE's earnings, I think, in the 1990s in particular. Now, things were different then. The whole culture of Wall Street and corporate America was focused on much less transparency. This was before the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, before the big scandals of the early 2000s when Enron and WorldCom and Tyco collapsed leading to a a much greater degree of oversight by the federal government. That said, uh, you're entirely correct to say that for something like almost 80 quarters in a row, GE meet or beat analyst expectations. And anyone, you don't have to be a genius to understand that something is going on for that to happen. Something fishy is going on for a company to meet or beat for 80 quarters in a row, because that just doesn't happen, right? That, that's like against the laws of nature. So you talk about the change in regulations. This is your beat. And we know we had regulations and then Trump undercut regulations. So to what degree uh, do these corporations have to report now? And to what degree it is different from the 90s? I'm talking about presently, 2022. Yeah, I would say on balance, there is a more granular level of reporting happening by major corporations today. There is certainly more accountability when it comes to the boards. And that was a big part of those early aught regulations. Um, If, you know, if boards are signing off on truly cooked books, it it doesn't get easy for for them to escape uh, accountability. It's also the case that there are very few companies that are employing the same kinds of financial shenanigans that GE was up to. 
And there are very few companies that have anything close to uh, an entity as complex as GE Capital was in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, not to mention something like that paired alongside a massive sprawling industrial business. So the comps get a little tricky right now. And it's also the case that when companies do engage in some of these shenanigans, the SEC has gotten better, I think, at calling them out and dinging them. You know, they And they ultimately caught up with GE. In 2009, the uh, then CEO, Jeff Immelt, Jack Welch's chosen successor, settled these sweeping accounting fraud charges with the SEC that mostly covered the period from roughly, I think, 2003 to 2005 or so, just after Welch retired. But in the settlement and in the news release and in all the remarks uh, that the SEC made at the time of that settlement, they pointed to what sure looked like decades of impropriety. And we won't know, right? Because we, we, there isn't the forensic accounting from the 80s and 90s. But they made the point that it sure looked like GE had been up to this sort of stuff, which they ultimately you know, settled with the SEC for, for years and years and years. In the newspaper today, there's a story about how the institutions, the professionals really didn't lose money on crypto. It was the retail investor. Anybody who's been exposed to one of these public companies know the, knows that the CFO plays a huge role. And I can give specific examples from my own exposure of people who are literally shipping product, changing to make the numbers look good. Okay. So that whatever they are, there is some fudge space. I'm not saying you can take a company that loses a hundred million and now it makes a hundred million, but the public doesn't seem to understand this. So to what degree have you encountered this in your reporting? Listen, on the crypto front, I, I think what we're seeing is the popping of a speculative bubble. And I, it's very hard to know when, you know, when people stop buying tulips, <laughs> just how, how far the bottom uh, is going to fall out from under people. I think the, the critical first point you made is one that is a through line of the reporting in this book as well, which is that the people in charge rarely face consequences and, and that the men, and they're almost always men, who have the most power in this economy and the most money in this economy are usually going to do just fine. There is very, very little accountability for corporate malfeasance in this country. And there is a grand tradition in America of true impunity, even for the worst offenders and even for those who unleash the most damage on society at large. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we're starting to see the same patterns play out in crypto and NFTs. Um, and my book, frankly, is a recitation of like hundreds and hundreds of examples of how Jack Welch and his cronies played the same game at major public companies for the better part of four decades. Let's go to the present day. So within the last six months, stock market has gone down, but let's focus on Netflix. Mm. Netflix reports essentially a flat quarter, loses 70% of the stock value. Let's be very clear. Almost all of that decline is based on scuttlebutt, analysts, this and that. Very little to do with the underlying business. There mm. might be questions the underlying business, 
but you know, a drop of 70%. And then of course, a lot of other things have dropped simultaneously, you know, later than that, et cetera. So to what degree is the street disconnected from businesses? And as long as they're making money, they don't really care what the hell you're doing. Uh, well, well, who, who is the, they, in that last part of the question, the, the street or the business, I would say wall street, meaning investors, I'll, I'll just make it a general investment community. Yeah. I mean, there's, this is the subject of many, you know, dissertations, Bob. Um, I, I, I think when we, if we talk about a story like Netflix, right, like that stock was obviously inflated because it was one of these pandemic stocks. And when the world moved online and everyone started spending 12 hours a day on their computers, um, Netflix sure looked like a good buy. And so to answer one of the parts of that question more directly, like there's of course a huge disconnect between the stock market and the fundamentals of any business. Um, you know, the, the stock is sort of a, a proxy for people's confidence in future earnings. Like we know this, um, in terms of the, the street and what they believe, I think that's it. That's a harder question for me to answer. I'm not an analyst and, you know, many analysts are going to pour money into companies that uh, or you know are, are going to invest heavily in companies that aren't making money we we see that all the time with big unprofitable tech companies and it's also the case conversely that there are plenty of companies that have um you know very respectable uh reliable maybe even growing though perhaps not terribly quickly profits that one could say are are tremendously undervalued I think to to sort of comment on any one stock is is difficult, especially at a moment where we're seeing a, a major market correction and there's so many other global forces at work from the supply chain to Ukraine. Um, so I, I, I would just say that it, it, in any few months, sort of reading too much into the movement of a particular stock is 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 sort of an exercise in potential folly. But if you look at the long chart of GE, I think you really do see the story that I tell in my book played out quite quite viscerally, which is that for 20 years, Jack Welch essentially used this combination of downsizing, deal-making, and financialization to inflate the valuation of GE's stock. And that as soon as those games stopped working for some combination of reasons that we can get into, the stock fell apart and never recovered. And it was just last year, of course, that the current CEO, Larry Culp, said that they were going to split the company up forever. Okay, let's go back to the narrative. Paint the picture of what's happening with GE and how Jack gets the gig and what are the financial conditions, compensation. Show us what's going on when he comes on uh, as CEO. Yeah, Jack took over GE in 1981. And before that, uh, it's really hard to overstate what an integral company General Electric was to the American economy. This was the company that was founded by Thomas Edison that, you know, introduced or popularized everything from the radio to the dishwasher, to the refrigerator, to the jet engine, to the laser, to the damn plastic. The guys who landed on the moon were wearing on their visors. Um, GE was essentially deeply integrated and, and some would say synonymous with the American economy for, all, for, for much of the 20th century. 
And, and that was the company that he inherited in 1981. Now, for those years, for that 10 years or so before he took over, the stock had mostly been flat. You know, the economy as a whole was experiencing stagflation, sort of combination of stagnant, uh, stagnant growth and inflation. That was making for a really rough run for investors. And Welch comes to the job with this real single-minded focus towards reversing that trend and making GE not only an engine of profits, but really, in his mind, it had the potential to be the most valuable company in the world. And he set about doing that. Um, But the CEO he took over from could not have been more different. The guy who preceded him, Reg Jones, he was this sort of genteel Englishman. He uh, lived quite modestly relative to certainly the way Jack would one day run run uh, the company as a CEO. He made, you know, a, a, a respectable sum, a million dollars or so, maybe more, a couple million dollars by the end of his tenure, but not tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so Jack comes in and is about the opposite in every way. He is brash, he impulsive, he is argumentative, whereas uh, Reg Jones had been cerebral and deliberative and you know, cordial. Uh, Welch is completely uh, unafraid to throw tradition out the window, whereas Jones had been very respectful of GE's legacy. And whereas Reg Jones really focused on making GE uh, a, an excellent version of the company it already was when he took over in the early 70s or late 60s, uh, Welch comes to the job with almost like an, a, a completely, um, immoral is not the right word, what's the word, um, with, with no real allegiance to GE's traditional businesses of lighting and power systems and transportation. You know, he, he'll make the most of those businesses, but at the end of the day, he's much more interested in things like media and finance and all sorts of finance um, to, and, and sees those new industries as the real future for General Electric. And he identifies all that. All, everything I just described is pretty clear within the first year or so that Welch takes over. And then he, he makes good on it. He spends the next 20 years sort of executing on that plan. Let's go back a chapter. Who is this guy? You read the book and it's referenced that he has short man syndrome. The other thing is when you work in a giant corporation, yes, you have to deliver, but relationships and getting along are one of the key elements. So let's start out with who is this guy and how does he end up at GE? Yeah, well, tell that to Jack Welch that you need to be nice to your colleagues. <laughs> I think he would have disagreed with you. Well, once you're at, ti- at the top, <laughs> it's oh, a different was, game. He, he, was a, he was an argumentative SOB from the get-go. All right, so who was this guy? Jack Welch was the only son of a poor family who grew up in the suburbs of Boston. His mom was a homemaker. His father uh, was a unionized tra- ra- rail conductor on the local uh, commuter train system. Uh, Welch was, as you said, short, uh, muscular, feisty, argumentative. He grew up, he had a chip on his soldier from an early age. He said, I grew up with my nose pressed up against the glass. He was poor and he knew it and he did not like it. 
Um, his parents were Irish Catholic. His mother made him an altar boy, but also instilled in him a real competitive streak. Made him learn how to play poker as a kid by using his own allowance money. So right away, he had this visceral sense of winning and losing. Um, he was incredibly smart. And I, I, I always mention that because there's no, there's no way that he could have done all the things he did without having an absolutely, absolutely, um, you know, keen sense, not only of strategy and intuition, but he is also just, you know, brilliant ability to hold and synthesize great deals of information. He was smarter than a lot of the people he worked with and he knew it. And even early in his career, when he hadn't proved anything, uh, it, he, that pissed him off as well. He went to college and then was the youngest person ever to graduate with a PhD from University of Champaign in Illinois, uh, graduated with a PhD in chemical engineering, I believe it was. And his first job was at GE. Um, first year in, he threatens to quit because he gets a $1,000 raise just like the other people in his group, but he thinks he deserves more. So he almost he threatens to quit. He finally talks his boss's boss into giving him a little more money, uh, and he agrees to stay. And then it's sort of off to the races. They start moving him up pretty swiftly, and he rises through the ranks at GE for uh, you know better part of 20-odd years, 25 years, before he's ultimately made CEO. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. 
Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Why does he get moved up the ranks? And is this despite his edgy personality? Or somehow does that help him? And how does he get chosen at CEO? Yeah, uh, it certainly seemed to help him. You know, GE was a deferential culture. It was in line with much of corporate America and where there weren't a lot of very hard edges. Um, but the fact that he was so different and that he was willing to essentially fire people to improve the profitability of a group, that he was willing to push his executives and his team members to go harder, to work faster, to take chances with volatile processes, and which in one case resulted in the of blowing up of a factory that he was very proud of in, a, in his own way. This set him apart. And so at that moment, after a decade of stagflation- Just, just, she, just wait, just slow down for one sec. Define for those who are not as sophisticated and informed as you, what do you mean by him blowing up a factory? Yeah, this is a, a relatively well well uh, documented incident somewhat earlier in in his career. He's running a, a factory in Massachusetts. They're trying to come up with a new product. There's a real pressure from the folks up top or down in Fairfield, as it were, at headquarters to get this right and to 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 make a profitable new plastic ASAP and get it to market. Uh, they were having trouble doing it. But Welch, you know, had his team uh, pushing as hard as they possibly could. And in the end, that meant experimenting with some very highly volatile processes and solutions that probably hadn't been fully vetted from a safety perspective. And one day he's sitting there in his office overlooking Plastics Avenue in Massachusetts and boom, the whole plant blows up. And there's a massive explosion. The building, the roof of the building is blown off. Miraculously, no one is hurt. No one is seriously injured. No one is killed. Uh, and yet, it was a, a sort of one of these early anecdotes that, that demonstrated just how potentially volatile this man was, how, uh, how explosive he could be as a manager. He's called to Fairfield, to headquarters, the next day, has to drive 100 miles or so and explain himself to the, to the higher-ups at headquarters. And essentially, they give him a pass. And that, to me, I think really was one of those moments where he suddenly realized that he could get away with it. And even if he pushed people, even if he was uh, taking chances, even if he caused some real destruction, there weren't immediate consequences. And that, I have to believe, emboldened him going forward. How do you actually get the gig as CEO? There was a process, as there always is. Um, Reg Jones himself uh, requested that Jack be included in the, uh, in the vetting process. And then um, they made, uh, they made the, CE, the potential candidates to succeed Reg Jones, write a series of memos, do a series of interviews. Uh, and in one of those memos, Welch outlines this vision for a much more aggressive, much more competitive, much more ruthless, frankly, version of GE, one that would compete in a different way in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, Jones and the board, they bought into that vision and he got the gig and he was, he was young. He was a shock candidate 
And uh, I think I'm quote. I think I'm going to get this quote right. When 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 it was announced, the Wall Street Journal said that GE had replaced a legend with a live wire. So we know via GE Capital and so many other things that Jack was really into financialization. The average person was not aware of the extreme depth of financialization on Wall Street until the 2008 crash. But even for years before that, people had commented that Wall Street no longer built things. It was the business of money. That was their business. To what degree was Jack responsible for that? And how did he get into that vertical of capital? I, I, I would hesitate to put the uh, whole transformation of Wall Street uh, on at Welch's feet. I lay a lot of blame at his feet for a lot of different issues. I think Wall Street was going to be changing during the 1980s almost no matter what. Where I think Welch's influence uh, really connected Wall Street with corporate America was the degree to which uh, he made GE adopt a lot of the worst aspects of banks and other global financial institutions. And we then saw many other companies uh, following suit and doing some of the same things. Uh, In terms of uh, how exactly he did it, it, it all started with this little unit called GE Capital. Um, GE had a finance arm for decades and decades during the uh, 19th century. I mean, excuse me, during the 20th century. And it was mainly used as a way to help uh, corporations and even individuals finance their purchase of GE products and services. If you couldn't pay for uh, you know, your refrigerator outright, it was basic lending arm. They, you could, they'd pay, charge a little interest and you could pay it in installments. Welch saw the potential of taking that arm and turning it into what was essentially an unregulated bank and ran with it. And he saw it from the get-go. He saw in one of those memos I mentioned that he wrote to Reg Jones, he said there was nowhere at the company where quantum change, I believe was the phrase he used, was needed more than in finance because he understood that in this kernel of a little business unit, there was the potential to create what would ultimately be a $600 billion pool of capital that stretched from everything from leased satellites to tie auto loans to commercial real estate debt. Okay. So tell my audience how we ended up using the capital to ensure that he met his quarterly targets. GE, by the time he was done, had an army of financial analysts and experts who literally at the end of every quarter, so you have to report earnings to Wall Street on, call it March 1st, by mid-February, you've got hundreds if not thousands of people running the numbers and saying, we told them we were going to make, I'm going to make it up here, $325 million in profit for the quarter. It looks like we're going to be coming in closer to $318 million. We need that $7 million. Well, then with such an enormous operation like GE Capital at your disposal, you've got any number of ways to find that extra $7 million in profit. You could do anything from sell a 
division or sell a portfolio of credit card loans. You could perhaps even uh, lay people off and take a tax write-off. Uh, you know, there were absolutely infinite ways that GE found to essentially use this enormous financial arm to, uh, as you said, massage the numbers quarter after quarter. And it was that sort of creative accounting, if you will, that allowed GE to hit meter beat for 80 quarters some odd in a row. Okay. Was there any way this could have worked or was it always a time bomb? There was always going to be a reckoning at some level it, because it wasn't just about the degree to which GE stock might have been overinflated because of the prominence of GE capital. The other thing that was happening during the 80s and 90s was that GE was underinvesting in research and development. They were fundamentally transforming their relationship with their employees. They were buying and merging their way into dozens of other industries. And so a reckoning was going to take place without a doubt. The question that animates me and which, you know, it's a, it's a counterfactual, so we're not going to have a clear answer to, is what would have happened if somewhere along the way, be it the 90s or the early 2000s, even after Jack left and Jeff Immon had a couple chances to reset the company, what would have happened if there was a serious effort made to wind down GE Capital, to double down on American manufacturing, to make kick-ass products and services, and do it in a way that would have positioned GE to become the number one manufacturer, the number one industrial company for the 21st century. They did it, right? They had done it for the 20th century. And there's nothing to say that they couldn't have done it for the 21st century, except they chose not to, right? They chose to go and buy portfolios, subprime mortgages in 2005. They chose to underinvest in R&D for the longest time. The culture ossified and people, and I talk about this in the book, you know, people were afraid to take chances. There was no willingness to spend and really invest in sort of blue sky initiatives that might have positioned GE to become a leader in say, autonomous vehicles or 3D printing or any number of other things that are going to be a big part of the economy going forward and that they weren't in yet, but they had the resources and they had the smarts. They still had tons of smart engineers at that company, but they weren't willing to do it. Okay. GE ultimately buys NBC. Everybody's aware of it because David Letterman is making jokes all the time. Was this purely an ego play to get into media and have that power and rub shoulders with the stars? Or at one point, was this seen as a good business? Well, GE acquired NBC through its acquisition of RCA, uh, which was another diversified conglomerate in the 1980s. And there's no doubt about it. GE uh, and Jack Welch definitely liked being a media mogul. Um, he relished in his ability to sort of rub shoulders with movie stars and even at times, you know, do his small part to try and influence coverage of the press. Um, but what, to the earlier question, was it seen as a good business move? Uh, sure. Right. It, if we accept that Jack Welch's mandate was to make GE the biggest company in the world, um, the acquisition of RCA 
fulfill, help fulfill that mandate. You know, he also wanted to be number one or number two in every industry. And I believe the combination of the RCA business with the GE TV set business, uh, you know, made the GE TV business sort of number one or number two in the world. So it, it, in, in those sort of rudimentary ways in which he evaluated his strategy and, and focused on trying to figure out how to make GE bigger and more profitable at the time. Yeah, that was actually a relative. I, I would say that was one of the sounder moves. Yeah, it, it did take them into the media business where they hadn't been, but there were some underlying fundamental industrial plays uh, as part of that big mega deal in 1986, I think it was, that, that certainly made some sense. Okay. Parallel to this story is the term, or actually two terms, of Ronald Reagan as president. Needless to say, he took over from Jimmy Carter after the Iran hostage crisis and incredible inflation. But that's when income inequality started. That's when corporate taxes started to fall. To what degree was Jack Welch GE helped by this Reaganism? Or to what degree are they really separate? Jack would have done this no matter what and gotten away with it. Oh, I think they are deeply enmeshed. These are symbiotic stories. And I allude to Reaganism and Reagan several times throughout the book because you're absolutely right that it was some of the deregulation during the Reagan administration that enabled some of GE's sort of most outrageous shenanigans. Uh, for example, even that, um, that was it even the RCA deal, I think was enabled by uh, a, the relaxing of antitrust statutes by the Reagan administration. There was some weird clause from earlier in the 20th century that expressly prohibited GE and RCA from linking up, but that was you know, very conveniently removed just before the deal. And then you look at things like uh, stock buybacks, which GE and Welch became absolute pioneers in um, for decades. Stock buybacks had essentially been illegal because it's effectively a company manipulating its own stock price under Reagan and his you know, absolute army of financial uh, representatives who took over major regulatory posts in the government. That statute was essentially eliminated. And all of a sudden, it was okay for companies to start buying back their own stock. And you mentioned inequality and corporate taxes. We can talk about those, but it's important to note that another one of those um, trend lines that sort of starts right around the time Welch takes over and has continued unabated to today is the use of corporate profits for stock buybacks and dividends. And, and, and the money used to be going to employees, the money used to be going to R&D and CapEx, the money is now going back to investors in the form of buybacks. Well, there's a lot of blowback about that. We can debate whether we're going to get any change. I'm not optimistic, but something you referenced earlier was the purchase and sale of assets. Now, you know, this really becomes bad under Immelt in your book, but it seemed like they were buying stuff just to make the numbers look good. Without a doubt. I mean, that was some of that, um, you know, those sort of last minute 
uh, adjustments that GE Capital would make every quarter. And and I, I have quotes in the book from people who worked at GE Capital, and they're like, yeah, you know, sometimes we needed a little more earnings by the end of the year, and so we would go buy a company that had some earnings, and then they were our earnings, right? <laughs> and so that was a part of this absolute infatuation with deal-making that Welch had. In, in his 20 years as CEO, he conducted something like 1,000 mergers and acquisitions. It was this unbelievably torrid pace of deal-making, which, here's another one, began during the Welch era and has really never abated. And it's led to the consolidation of American industries. It's led to more market concentration. And plenty of academics who have done the work more so than I have, have pointed out that that market concentration, that consolidation has led to an enormous amount of pain for consumers in the form of higher prices and reduced competition and ultimately reduced innovation for our country. Okay, let's talk about a little closer with our feet on the ground. There, he's work, he, GE owns these companies, and he's constantly laying people off and closing companies, and there's a social cost with people. Also, if they need people, they hire contractors. Is this something that he pioneers, or is he the person who first blows it up, or is just this evidence of what everybody is doing? No, he was one of the first. And and time and again, and this is, Bob, one of the things that struck me and gave me the conviction to really keep going when I started looking into this, he was the first time and time and time again. He was the guy that essentially was the progenitor of so many of these absolutely deleterious trends that now seem like as fundamental to us as the weather and the rising and setting of the sun, but are actually just choices that rich executives made in the 1980s that we're all still living with. So when it comes to outsourcing and offshoring, yeah, 100%. Had there been a little outsourcing and offshoring in the years before that? Sure. Was Welch the first one to get on top of a mountain and scream? that this was the way to do business? And was he the first to take a major American employer and absolutely reshape it and make it dependent, not on what was essentially lifetime employees who grew up inside that company and could expect to retire them, but bring in this new, more transactional relationship with its employees and state publicly that if he could, he would put every factory on a barge so it would float around the world in international waters, changing favorable exchange rates and good anti-regulatory you know, policies. And that if he could, he wanted to make every job that he could get to be done outside GE, done outside GE. If he could hire people at printing presses to print his stuff, print it. If you can fire food service workers to work in his cafeteria, do it. And that's why even today as an employee of the New York Times company, when I walk into the New York Times building, the first person I see every morning does not work for the New York Times. They are security guards who are hired by a contractor. And I can only hope that they enjoy fair wages and good benefits. But I don't think it's a stretch to believe that it's not what the New York Times offers. It's journalists and other people on the payroll. 
With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, the other thing Jack is famous for is the 10%, firing the 10% at the bottom. This was lauded unbelievably, okay? And you wrote a book about mindfulness, not that I'm exactly sure what that means, Hmm. but was this good for business? Was there an ultimate cost in dissatisfaction and competition amongst the employees? And how does mindfulness fit into the whole corporate structure? Mm. Well, you're referring to stack ranking, which is the process that Welch innovated, pioneered, of telling managers to sort their employees into the top A, B, and C players. A players are 20% of your workforce. They're the best. The B players are the mediocre middle, those you know, 70% in the middle. And the bottom is the 10%, the C players. And Welch said, your 10 players, your 10%, those C players, every year they got to go. Um, that was one of these sort of cold-hearted management techniques that Welch pioneered and became popular at GE. But because GE was so influential, everyone else started to do it. And it really caught hold in corporate America. And it continues to this day. 
It was popular under Steve Ballmer at Microsoft for the longest time. And companies like WeWork and Uber have been using stack ranking even recently. So yet again, here we have this sort of signature, weird, sort of ruthless innovation by Welch about firing 10% of his workforce every year. Something that he started doing in the 1980s, still around with us 40 years later. This is the guy that broke capitalism. That's why I called it that. (laughs) Okay, just to throw in the mindfulness part, how should people be operating Because another point you make in the book is this, you know, uh, as a result of the stack ranking, it reduces uh, cooperative working. There are all sorts of costs that people don't see right on the surface. So how should these companies be run? Listen, I'm not a management expert and I've never been a CEO and I'm the first to admit that. So I can't tell a company exactly how to run. What I can say is that when I look at CEOs who are able to steward their companies in the long term and create real value, not only for their top investors, the hedge funds that might own 12% of the stock or whatever, but for all the different constituents that they serve from their employees to their communities, to the you know people down their supply chain, and to, yes, of course, their investors. Uh, I see... CEOs that operate in a fundamentally different way. They are not mercenaries looking to cut costs wherever they can. They are not, you know, sort of these cold-eyed, um, you know, bean counters who simply focus on the numbers to the exclusion of all other considerations. They are men and women who take a much more holistic view of their responsibilities as business leaders and bring to mind the nuances of all of that complex set of responsibilities that they have when making decisions about hiring and firing, about investment, about strategy, and what companies they, what kind of companies they want to run, and what companies uh, they want to buy and sell. So I, I can't sit here and give you a, a short answer to how to run a company. What I can say is, uh, in the long run, the Jack Welch playbook usually leads to ruin. Okay, just because I'm interested, you know, they would have these retreats at their campus, not the Fairfield campus, but a separate campus. Yeah. And other companies have replicated this. Is this just basically an old boys network? What really goes on there? Is there any benefit? I think a lot of people who went there would say there's lots of benefit. Um, This was, you're referring to a place colloquially known as Crotonville, which was the GE Management Development Center, I think I got that right, uh, in Croton on Hudson, a small village just north of New York City. And it was one of the first of its kind, sort of off-site retreat centers, executive learning centers. Uh, and as you said, it was replicated by many other big American companies, including, I mean, I'm going to forget them all, but Hitachi, IBM, Boeing, et cetera, uh, all sort of saw what GE did and, and made it. And over the years, it served many different purposes. Welch wasn't the one who who pioneered it. He sort of revived it and brought it back when he took over. But it was it was extant for much of the 20th century and served as a place where GE leaders would go and essentially go to in-house business school. This is where they could go brush up on strategy, 
learn from their colleagues, take classes on this, that, or the other, you know, <laughs> how to dodge taxes. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know exactly what the curriculum was uh, under Welch, but it was clear that this was an effort by him and his executive team to create a system where they could drive their values, drive their vision, drive their tactics deep down into the organization. And by all accounts, it was very successful. Um, so was it old boys club? Yeah, I'm sure there were elements of that. You put enough uh, well-paid executives at an offsite, and <laughs> inevitably there's going to be some, uh, some antics. And I document some of those in the book. But, but I, I, I think the more interesting thing to me is the degree to which they really formalized the, um, the, the teaching formalized the training of the Jack Welch worldview for so many thousands of GE employees who worked there. Okay. Let's talk about the big one from the street level, executive compensation. I did not grow up in a poor environment, but you were rich if you drove a Cadillac. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe I grew up next to Westport, Connecticut. I think I saw Ferrari once in my whole life until I moved to Los Angeles. So you have these incredible pay packages, which go on to today. Now, one of the things these companies or these boards say, if we don't pay this amount of money, somebody else will. To what degree is Jack responsible for this incredible run-up in executive compensation? Yeah, here's another one where I think I'll put a little of the blame in his feet, but certainly not all of it. Um, no doubt about it. He was one of the first CEOs in the 1980s and 1990s to start getting these gargantuan pay packages. And it's important to remember that he was not an inventor. He was not a founder. He is a people manager. Um, he, was, he was paid to run this company uh, and he was rewarded as if he were a king for it. He made uh, first tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars. By the end of his career, his net worth was approaching a billion dollars. He was on the Forbes 400 list of the richest Americans alive at the time. Uh, and so was he emblematic of it? Absolutely. Was his board complicit and do they deserve a ton of the blame? Absolutely. Was it probably going to happen in any case? I think so. This is This is one where... The, there were enough other people who saw the opportunity, my sense is, that um, it's hard for me to see a, sort of a, 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 an alternate history where we don't have executive compensation that's just wildly out of control in the way that it is today. Um, because, you know, that's like, and this is like the American story to me. This is where just the nature of who we are as a country and our, you know, the absence of guardrails on, on the economy and on capitalism that we seem to love so much, it takes us to these truly unhealthy extremes. And, and basically people say, you know, we're not going to do anything about it. And, and so what? Uh, yeah. So that, that's sort of how I think about Welch in the executive compensation was he a, a, a main driver? Yes. Was he solely responsible? I, I want to be careful there. Okay. One big element of the book is how his disciples go on to blow up these companies across America. So he's so successful. Other boards want some of this magic. These employees that are now CEOs replicate the paradigm 
and the companies do incredibly poorly. Tell us about that. Even before Jack Welch was born, GE was seen as the training ground for other executives around corporate America. It had this long and distinguished history throughout the 20th century of being the place where other CEOs were taught how to do their business, which is to say that when another company wanted to hire their next CEO, they looked to GE. The, the, the thinking was that GE executives were just head and shoulders above the rest of the competition. And for that reason, people already before Jack wanted to hire from GE when they needed a new boss. Under Welch, that was taken to a wild extreme. And that is because in part, Jack Welch was so successful during his run in generating stock value. And so when other CEOs and boards said, we need a new CEO, they thought that people who worked for Welch might have the Midas touch. That if they were able to be a part of Welch's machine, making so much money for GE shareholders, maybe they could do it at all these other companies. And as a result, I don't I don't have a specific count, and I don't know that anyone does because there were frankly so many over so many years. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens, probably more than 60 individuals who worked directly for Welch and then went on to run other US public companies. And while I don't have a, a completely exhaustive list at, at, at because I don't know again that one is available, what I can say with certainty is that Almost in every case, the same story repeated itself ad infinitum. The CEO was hired by a new company from a position at GE. They were given a multi-million dollar pay package that ensured them a gilded retirement no matter what happened to that company. They put to work the Jack Welch style of management, uh, downsizing, deal-making, often diving into finance in many cases. And then within months, sometimes it was, sometimes it was quarters, maybe it was a year or two in a few cases, but relatively quickly, all of these bad decisions would catch up with them and with the company. And the CEOs almost always left the companies worse off than they inherited them. The CEOs did get their pay package, but many were forced to resign or step down early. And then the companies had to reset because it was proven that, well, yeah, Jack was able to do it for 20 years at GE. The strategy just simply does not work, not only in the long term, but, but oftentimes in the short term too. Okay, let's talk specifically about Boeing. So Boeing is a legendary American company. They hire a new GE disciple, which I was not aware of the time. And move the headquarters to Chicago. That's like the Dodgers having their front office in New York. <laughs> it just makes no sense. So walk us through what happened there, how that guy got the job, and why the board was so complicit. Yeah, besides GE itself, there's no company that was more directly shaped by Welch than Boeing. Uh, it began in 1997 when Boeing merged with McDonnell Douglas, another fading American aircraft manufacturer. And as part of that deal, they got this guy named Harry Stonecipher, who had worked with Jack under uh, 
at GE and then was running McDonnell Douglas and then joins Boeing as part of the merger uh, as a president, not CEO at the time, but as president. But because he had so much stock in McDonnell Douglas, all of a sudden, he's the biggest stock owner at the company. And this guy, who's just the president of the company, who's the CEO of a subsidiary now that was merged into Boeing, he has the most stock. And all of a sudden, he starts throwing his weight around inside Boeing. And over the next several years, he becomes CEO and makes, as you said, this fateful decision to move Boeing headquarters from Seattle, birthplace of commercial aviation in the country, to Chicago. And why do they do it? For tax breaks. And, you know, as you said, I love the, I love the Dodgers metaphor. Uh, and and it, was, it had nothing to do with running a good business. It had everything to do with making a profit. And in fact, Stone Cipher himself said this. In 2004, he gave an interview where he said, some people say I'm not running Boeing like an engineering company. And that's right. I'm trying to run it like a business. People expect to make money. It's not an engineering firm. Something to that effect. And it was this admission that the Boeing that everyone knew and, and respected, which was a company that was defined by quality aeronautical engineering, was not long for this world. But he was just the first. Harry Stonecipher was the first of three CEOs who worked directly for Welch, who have run Boeing over the last 20 years and have really overseen its decline as a great American company. After Stonecipher was fired in 2005 for having an affair with a subordinate, the guy that they tapped to replace him is Jim McNerney, another Welch disciple who was actually one of the runner-ups after Jeff Immel to take over Welch's job. Jim McNerney takes over Boeing after running 3M for a few years and keeps on with this sort of implementation of the Jack Welch playbook. He looks at what they do uh, and how they're going to build their next plane, the 787, and he makes two absolutely pivotal decisions. He says, we don't want to build it in Seattle because there's too much union labor there. So they open up a new manufacturing facility in Charleston where there's not as much unionized labor and where there's no history of aviation manufacturing. And so guess what? There's all these problems on those planes, something I documented on the front page of the paper. And the other thing he does is start to embrace outsourcing because Jack Welch loved outsourcing. And so whereas Boeing historically manufactured something like two-thirds of the parts on any given airplane and outsourced the other third, the ratio is flipped under McNerney. And all of a sudden, they're outsourcing two-thirds of the parts on their own plane and only building a third of it themselves. And they lose control of quality. They lose control of timing. And then McNerney makes the, what I think is the most fateful decision. In 2011, he's about to lose a big order of 737s to, America, to Airbus, his chief rival, uh, to American Airlines. And he tells American Airlines, you know what, give us another week. We got a decision to make. They decide to redesign the 737 one more time rather than create a new airplane, which would have taken longer, which would have made, uh, would have, which would have meant that they would have lost out this critical order to Airbus. And he says, uh uh-uh, we will redesign the 737 one more time. And that plane becomes the 737 Max, which of course crashed twice in five months, killing 346 people, something I spent a year of my life reporting on. McNerney is finally replaced by a man named Dennis Mullenberg. Mullenberg oversees the, the, the two crashes, the period around the two crashes. And when Mullenberg is finally fired because he's completely 
uh, inept in managing Boeing through a crisis. He's replaced by Dave Calhoun, yet another Welch disciple, a guy who at the age of 42 was considered a potential successor to Welch because he was uh, such a likeness of the young Welch himself, and who to this day is the CEO of the Boeing company. Okay. How did you end up on the Boeing beat? <laughs> I, I walked into the newsroom one morning in, I guess it was March of uh, 2019, uh, having never written about the airline industry before, but sitting next to the woman who had been covering airlines for us, uh, but who happened to be on vacation that day. And when the business editor of the New York Times wandered over to our desk, she said, uh, Julie's gone. David, what are you doing right now? And I said the only right answer, which is, I don't know, what am I doing right now? You tell me, boss. And she said, call Boeing, because another plane had just crashed. And that was how I began covering it. Um, one of the things we can do as reporters um, is learn pretty quickly. And so the next year of my life was a... Um, I was going to use a poor metaphor there, but 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 an accelerated learning period of uh, trying to understand the airline industry and um, getting you know ultimately pretty deeply sourced inside the Boeing company. You know, Boeing obfuscated and denied responsibility. Trump seemed to be on their team. To what degree were you in the press responsible for opening this story and shining light on the facts? And what was it like being right, you know, there on the point of a story? Well, I mean, we broke a ton of important critical stories uh, in the Boeing coverage. So did the Wall Street Journal. So did the Seattle Times. Uh, it, there was a huge amount of media interest. And there's no doubt that some of the revelations that uh, the Times, the Journal, and the Seattle Times were responsible in helping uncover tremendously helped shape the narrative and um, ultimately expose what had actually happened. It's also true that the uh, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee took this very seriously and devoted a huge amount of federal legislative investigative muscle to this story. And as a result, we're able to obtain, I got to believe, millions and millions of pages of Boeing documents, of which many hundreds or maybe a few thousand were ultimately made public in hearings about the crashes. Um, so there were, there were a lot of eyes on Boeing after the second crash, of course. Uh, and you, I, I want to respect the work we did and our competitors did, but, but I don't think it's fair to say that the press alone was responsible for uncovering you know, the true and full story of what happened inside Boeing. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. 
It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Now, in is your role in your role as a reporter for the New York Times on this beat, to what degree was reporting based on accumulating and reading these documents? as opposed to getting on the phone, sending emails, asking people questions. Is this for Boeing or for the book? For Boeing. Oh, it was a mix. I mean, we, we had a spreadsheet, and I, I think I can talk about this publicly, but there was a team of reporters working on it. It wasn't just me. And we, as a team, had a shared Google Doc that by the end of our year on this story had the names of more than 1,000 people who we had contacted. And so there was a lot of cold calling. There was knocking on doors. There were handwritten letters that were sent. Uh, there were, you know, innumerable LinkedIn messages and Twitter DMs. We, we worked real hard to talk to as many people as we could. And we ultimately got, you know, many, many important voices on the record um, who, who, for, you know, a variety of reasons, initially didn't want to go on the record. And, and that was pivotal reporting that did shape um, beyond sort of the arc of the investigation itself. Definitely, I think I can say with confidence, affected personnel decisions at Boeing. It was, you know, just the day after I published a story on the front page of the New York Times with the CEO of Southwest Airlines essentially bad-mouthing Boeing and its leadership that Dennis Mullenberg was fired. Uh, and those kind of things matter. Um, uh, those kind of stories definitely, as you know, get noticed inside a big company. Um, so we talked, uh, again, you know, I personally talked to hundreds of people with my colleagues. We talked to more than a thousand people and we read, I don't know how many, you know, thousands of pages of airline manuals and documents along the way. Okay. I want to drill down really to where the rubber meets the road. Uh, people are more sophisticated now than they used to be. Something happened such that you're at the center of a news item. 
Reporters come out of the woodwork. They want to be your best friend. Whatever happens, they move on to the next story when they're done with you. And people are more sophisticated than that. To what degree are you anxious about asking people questions? And a lot of people are not forthcoming. How do you convince them to be forthcoming? Yeah, I don't have a lot of anxiety about asking people questions. Um, I'm, I put my cards on the table when I'm talking to someone. I tell them what I want to talk about. So that doesn't, um, that's not a big inhibitor in my own work. Uh, in terms of convincing people to talk to us or to go on the record, about things they might be uncomfortable with. That's one of the hardest things. And I'm, I'm frankly not an expert at it. I, it's, I've done some of that in my career, but it's not my bread and butter. Um, I think that, you know, people like my friend Emily Steele, who helped uh, break the Bill O'Reilly story, uh, our colleagues uh, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, who broke the Harvey Weinstein story for us, they are way more seasoned than I in convincing people to talk, especially on the record, about really difficult and challenging things. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what they would say, if I could summarize for them, and, and what I would say is you got to appeal to the greater good. And you got to convince people that even if they don't want to do this, and they believe that there might be some personal repercussions for them in the form of blowback or embarrassment or making them a public figure in a way they're not ready for, that there is a greater social good at work here and that they have the opportunity to you know, help make things better for other people, to prevent some suffering for other people down the line, uh, and to make the world a better place. And I think if you can make that argument convincingly, you got a shot. Do you personally have any anxiety about flying on a 737 Max? No. Because... A variety of reasons. I mean, I'm like uh, tens of thousands of commercial planes take off and land every day, and almost none of them ever crash. So, just by the law of numbers, uh, I just like my chances. Um, it's also true that the 737 Max uh, has undergone a series of changes and revisions and updates that have addressed the problem that was uh, responsible for those two crashes. So there's, there's no, that, you know, I, I, won't, I shouldn't be speaking total declaratives, but there is almost a zero chance that that same problem would ever encounter, be encountered again. But more, more broadly than that, I just, the, the law of big numbers suggests that you're very, 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 very unlikely to die in a commercial airplane crash. Okay. Recently, the New York Times had a change in editorship. What has changed? Uh, not a lot. Um, you know, Joe Kahn, who's our new executive editor, was an instrumental part of guiding the Daily Report for years now. He's a known quantity in the newsroom. I think his priorities uh, are very aligned with those of Dean Baquet. So, I would not be the first to note that this was a pretty drama-free succession uh, at the New York Times, and, and I think that's a good thing for the paper. Well, many people have commented, and I've noticed myself as an avid Times reader, that certainly on the political front, there's 
I don't want to say fewer false equivalencies. There's more reporting on the right and things that are troubling than there used to be before. Is that something you feel at all? Uh, I, I guess I would dispute that conclusion, but I would also note that Joe has been executive editor for a matter of weeks and that kind of reporting takes months and months to plan and, and deliver. So whatever changes people might've noticed on a particular way that we're covering something in the past couple of weeks is probably reflective of decisions that were made, uh, you know, many months prior. How do you end up working at the New York Times? Uh, someone just said a good quote about, you know, luck is, what is it? Luck is where opportunity meets hard work or something like that. So I feel lucky. Um, I also had good opportunities, but I also busted my butt for a long time. Uh, I was, uh, late to the journalism game. I was not a, a part of my high school newspaper or my college newspaper. It was really in my early twenties when I got the journalism bug and I was designing museum exhibitions at the time, doing nothing like reporting at all. Um, but I got the bug and I went back to journalism school at Berkeley. And um, I think a couple of things, I, I had a really great professor, a couple of really great professors. I got a really great story early on that gave me a huge amount of confidence um, that I could really do this and, and, and make a go of it. And then I decided to focus on business reporting uh, pretty early on, which was a, a strategic move and one that that really has worked to in my advantage over the years. So why business reporting? I realized no one else was interested in it, and I was. And that you know that delta there was very compelling to me because I understood right away not only that there were huge stories in business, right? Business is everything. There are huge stories here. Uh, it was super fascinating to me. Uh, it was where there was power, right? I could see that there was power there and and it was a way into reporting on powerful people. And the fact that I basically had it to myself among my class at the business, at, at the journalism school, meant that it was pretty wide open. Uh, and then I also realized that there were jobs in it and I didn't want to be like, you know, making $16,000 a year writing features about street poets for the rest of my life. I wanted like, if I was going to do this, I wanted to have a real career. Okay, one of the criticisms of uh, the New York Times is there's groupthink, and it's really like its own sports team, and you don't really want to be too much of a star or go too far out and maybe hurt the team. To what degree do you feel pressure to fall in line with the team in general or be fearful that you raise your head and do something might piss people off? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Give me an example. Okay. Well, you know, there was the whole Taylor Lorenz thing that people were blowing back. There was the Barry Weiss thing that people were blowing back. And what people don't realize is these newspapers, this tends to be people who see this as a lifelong career and their employers are these giant institutions writing books individually, et cetera, com something completely different. So such that people end up becoming, even though they're individuals, they're part of the group. And then therefore they can react to another person in the group, maybe having too much success or doing something that pisses them off. We had a certain thing that happened at the Washington Post. You're in the belly of the beast. Is it just calm or can you feel these things? 
All right, I'm going to back up. Uh, I'm an employee of a for-profit corporation. They pay me to do a job. My responsibility is to do my job really well, as well as I can for my organization. So that's how I, like, that's the fundamental level at which I understand my relationship with the New York Times. I get paid to do a job. You said like, I, you know, a lot of people see it as a lifelong career. I, I don't, I won't necessarily accept that as a, as, uh, 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 as the way I think about my time at the Times. I'm super grateful. I've been here for nine years. I'm in no rush to leave. I have no plans to leave. But I also don't necessarily think it's the only job I'll ever have in my life. I think mean, some people might feel that way, sure, but it's not necessarily how I think about it. In terms of interpersonal dynamics, I don't think it's different than any other organization. If you And I'm not speaking about any specific incident uh, or any of the ones you just mentioned. But if you work at PepsiCo, and you publicly are talking shit about your colleagues, there will probably be repercussions. If you're uh, on a sports team and you go to the press conference after a loss and say, you know, like, yeah, you know, if you're Katie and Katie's like, Kyrie was a piece of shit. Like he's, you know, such and such and such and such and goes off on your teammate, there might be consequences. So the it's no doubt about it, you know, Institutions like the New York Times get a huge amount of scrutiny, but I don't necessarily believe that there is a, um, you know, something, some like weird magic sauce about the, uh, a newspaper's culture. Um, in terms of, can I feel like, of course, you know, like when, when big things royal an organization, the individuals of that organization, whether they or not, they're directly a part of it. They notice it, they feel it. And so, I, again, I, what I alluded to earlier when we talked about the new executive editor uh, pertains here too, right? Like things are pretty calm at the New York Times right now internally, uh, at least for me, at least what I'm seeing. And for the most part, that's good. And I think is reflective of a healthy culture where reporters by and large are focused on doing the work, which is what they pay us for. Okay, your beat recently changed to the climate how did that happen? I won't bore you with the whole way it happened, but what I'll say is that I have been on the business desk for the better part of nine years at the paper, and I've done all sorts of different things on the business desk. And I was at a place and the paper was at a place where we realized uh, there was the opportunity for me to do uh, sort of to refocus my energies. And the, the way to do that while capitalizing on all my experience in reporting on business, all my connections in the business world, and get me focused on a topic I'm really excited about uh, was to essentially move me from the business desk to the climate desk, but I'm still, I'm still writing about business. So my focus is on the intersection of the business world and public policy. And that's a, that's a big overlap, but I'm still very much reporting on the business world, um, though very much through the lens of climate change and particularly the energy transition. Okay. So what's going on? Give us a snapshot. <laughs> well, the humanity has been burning fossil fuels uh, un- relentlessly for the past uh, 120, 150 years, depending on when you start counting it. And it's dramatically changed the climate of the earth in ways that are uh, creating exponentially more uh, 
destructive and severe weather events and, and that are starting to affect and endanger and jeopardize not only you know, many millions of humans, um, but many other parts of the ecosystem as well. And while there has been decades of scientific consensus uh, making clear the imperative to stop burning fossil fuels, we as a human society have not done a very good job following the advice of our scientists. And on balance, we are still headed in the wrong direction. Needless to say, there's two sides here. There's climate deniers. There are corporations that have an investment in burning uh, fossil fuels. So to what degree do you feel you're preaching to the converted? How do you penetrate the minds of people who could make better decisions, whether they be corporations or people who believe otherwise? Yeah, I don't, I don't, again, Bob, I don't see that as my job, right? Like my mandate isn't to convert people. Um, my mandate is to report on what's happening and be as accurate as possible and try to find stories that help explain how we got here and where we're going. So I'm not in the business of, of converting people. Um, you know, if that happens along the way and, and people who previously didn't believe in science believe in science as a result of my reporting, great. But that's, that's not my remit. Okay, well, just getting a little deeper into the facts. Mm. We have the Supreme Court decision that ultimately neutered the EPA to a great degree. What's the landscape going forward? Well, I, I would, I would uh, dispute your characterization of that ruling of West Virginia. Uh, by all accounts, it was, it was not uh, great for the power of the EPA to regulate uh, the emissions of power plants in, in general. But it was not nearly as expansive a, a ruling as some uh, climate advocates feared. Um, so uh, the EPA still does the, have the ability to, in, to, to regulate the emissions of individual power plants, but, but it makes it more complicated to regulate them as a group. All that is a roundabout way of saying that the Supreme Court is, uh, well, the Supreme Court is, and this decision is one of the ways in which the Biden administration has been essentially losing the tools it has at its disposal to reduce overall emissions in the United States. And the inability to pass Build Back Better was one of those. There are other issues going on that my, my colleague Coral Davenport has reported on in depth. But the, the upshot is we as a nation, and it's largely a result of the hyperpartisanship, and as you said, the the, a, a pretty clear partisan rift between how the different parties are approaching climate and energy issues um, are not moving very quickly to reduce the United States's greenhouse gas emissions. And if one wanted to reduce those, where are the opportunities? Well, there are many, and, and I want to be careful here because I am not an expert. Um, but the Build Back Better plan, the reconciliation package that was on the table and that was essentially you know, killed by Senator Manchin, who, of course, is from West Virginia and has business interests uh, tied to the coal industry, uh, that bill, that, that package, would have uh, allocated huge sums of money towards essentially transitioning power generation in the United States to renewable energy. And that's, that, that is 
not necessarily the number one way to reduce emissions, but it, it's one of the biggest, right? Like, let's stop using, we don't use a whole lot of coal in this country anymore, um, but let's stop using natural gas. Uh, let's, for power generation, let's stop using coal wherever it is still used. Uh, and let's start using more oil, uh, excuse me, more solar, more wind, uh, and more hydroelectricity. These are renewable sources of energy that do not create new emissions. Okay, just on a very practical matter, you know, we've had COVID, everything's a little bit crazy. Maybe we should go before that. To what degree do you go into the office every day? To what degree do you choose your own topics? Are they assigned? Do you write stuff? specifically be printed? Do you write stuff and they reject it? What's the whole process of the mechanics there? Well, I, I've been in the office more than most for the last year and a half or so. I like the office. I like my desk. I like seeing people and talking to people. Um, but it's also the case that not <laughs> I'm one of, I'm in the minority still. And so, uh, have if, you had COVID? <laughs> yes, I've had COVID <laughs> twice <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm fortunate to still be sitting here and, and, and to not have any severe lasting impacts, at least that I'm aware of right now, maybe in my brain. <laughs> um, but listen, as for the reporting process, um, it's a mix of uh, writing stories that the editors have asked for and then working with them to identify targets that, uh, again, sort of help us continue our mission of, of trying to write fact-based stories that, that help explain where the climate situation is and what's, what's to come. So I would say on balance, you know, since I joined the climate desk, most of my sort of biggest marquee pieces, you know, big investigative features, those kind of things have been ones I've come up with myself. I've got a, a good line of reporting I'm excited about, which was uh, you know, probably myself and another reporter sort of stumbled across some stuff and I'm, I'm picking it up and running with it. Uh, but it's also the case. I wrote a news analysis story uh, on Friday after the West Virginia ruling that was very much something the editors wanted to see. And it was their idea. And I was like, that's a good idea. I can turn that around in a day or so. And there it was in the paper. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, 
those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let's go back to the book. There was a review in the New York Times book review by Kurt Anderson, which was more than relatively negative. Now, the caveat here is he wrote a book, which I would not call identical, but many people feel covered a similar subject. How'd you feel about all that? I didn't write my book for book reviewers, uh, and so I'll just leave it there. Let me put it a different way. Uh, the nature of being in the public eye is you get a lot of feedback. There are people who attack you just to attack you. So now that your level has been raised, your profile has been raised, what's that been like for you? I've been surprised how few people have really come at me and tried to argue with the premise of the book, right? <laughs> I, make a, I make a pretty clear uh, rhetorical argument in this book which is that Jack Welch bears singular responsibility for a lot of the problems we have in our society. Um, I've yet to so see someone sort of take the other side <laughs> of that debate in a really forceful way. Um, I, I, and that to me has been surprising. Even when Jeff Immelt, Jack's successor, came after me on LinkedIn, it was in this sort of limp way of saying like Jack was actually a good manager. But right, like, no effort to to dispute the actual uh, merits of my argument. Okay. And that to me, um, you know, uh, I'm not saying I'm entirely right. I mean, I believe in my thesis, but, but it, it, this is a book that was meant to start a conversation. And what I've been really gratified by is the fact that people want to have this conversation. And certainly not everyone agrees with me. Um, but what you said, honestly, Bob, what you said in, in your newsletter is one of my favorite things. Uh, and it's a quote I'm using and I'm telling my marketing people to use. You said, if everyone in America read this book, there would be a revolution. And I was like, God damn, that's right. Right. That's actually, that was the intent. That was the, the spirit I was trying to provoke with this book. And the fact that you and others have responded to it, to me, um, suggests that at least, you know, that effort to spark a conversation, to get us talking about these big issues and, and how we can live in a, in a society that works for more people um, was, was at least somewhat successful. And commercially, as the book met your expectations, exceeded them, disappointed you? Yeah, exceeded. Uh, it, it, it was a hit. 
Um, and I, I, I was a nervous author, right? <laughs> the, 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 in the days and months and weeks before we knew how this book was doing, I was, hella, you know, I was deeply nervous. Uh, but no, listen, it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. It was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Uh, it hit number 28 in all books on Amazon. Uh, it's gotten a huge amount of press coverage. Um, I will note uh, almost all of it favorable with a few notable exceptions, which I can take my lumps on and uh, keep keep marching forward. And uh, and yeah, and like people are talking about this. And that that to me was like, if people want to talk about this and if it gets, a, if it fires people up, you know, whether they get pissed off about it or not, I'm fine. Um, as long as they're sort of having the argument in good faith. Uh, that's gravy to me. Uh, I hope people disagree with it, right? Like if, if it's not Jack, tell me who it is. Tell me how we got here. Tell me what's wrong with our society that this, you know, CEOs make 600 times what the medium employee works, makes and, and that it takes like three jobs for a low-income family to keep food on the table, right? Like I, how did we get here? In the world today, there's so many messages You've had a successful book. What is the key to getting the message out? I had a great team. I'm not, I'm not BSing you. I, had, I have good marketing people at Simon & Schuster who, who did yeoman's work. Um, and uh, I was very engaged in it as well. I tried real hard to get people to buy this book. I didn't just write it. Um, so there's some hustle involved for sure. But I think at the end of the day, you have to have a really crystalline idea that people want to talk about. And, and I was, I didn't know if this was going to be one of those, but, but clearly it has been. And it, it's, it's helped me, you know, if I, if I ever write another book, I think I've learned things through this process that have really made me realize what, what, uh, what some of these successful elements of a book launch would be. And I think number one is like, can you, can you say in a sentence what your idea is? And does that sentence want to make people keep talking? Okay. And the actual process of writing the book, did you take time off from the times you write it in your spare time? How'd you do it? I didn't take time off. I did it in my spare time. It was incredibly, incredibly quick process. Um, I had the idea for the book in April of 2020. So just over two years ago, I wrote the proposal, um, in August of 2020. So less than two years ago, I didn't sign the contract till October, November of 2020. So now we're talking like 18 months ago. And then I crashed this thing in a, in a year or so, uh, which is an absurd timeline for a book. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 my wife gets lots of thanks for bearing with me and, and helping take care of our kids. Well, I, I, uh, I, I spent time writing this book. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us here, David. Really fascinating. I'm sure everybody will be stimulated. I've already gotten a ton of email. People bought and read the book. I'm sure now even more people will. So thanks for writing the book because someone had to write the truth. That's why I had to get it immediately. Said Someone is speaking the truth about Jack Welch, which was sitting there in plain sight. So in any event, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Bob. And you you literally gave me my favorite quote, my favorite blurb of this whole cycle, and I'll never forget it. Wow, that's great. Until next time, this is Bob Lefsitz.
time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.